this concept of conscious consumerism is all about helping people to stop and pause and just take a moment and ask yourself, was anyone harmed in the making of this item? And do I support that industry if that was the case? And I think far too often we don't we don't take that moment just to check in. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the KonMari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified KonMari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. How does your personal clutter impact the world? Today's guest on Spark Joy is Evan Zislis. He is a professional organizer and best-selling author of The Clutter-Free Revolution. Evan helps people focus on the things that matter most, who we love, what we do, how, and why we live. Because everything else is just stuff, right? Currently, Evan is the founder of Intentional Solutions, a business focused on organization, operational systems, time, and task management, and more. Welcome to Spark Joy, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Welcome to Spark Joy. We're so glad you're here. So, Evan, I want to ask you about your many paths to um, to getting to where you are. You've you've been many many different things in your life. You've worked in education. Um, you have been a social entrepreneur. Um, you're an author, obviously, and you've done professional organizing. Tell us how did this journey come about, and and how did this all kind of combine and converge into your current business, the Intentional Solutions. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I, I think like most amazing things that come to us, they come to us um, not necessarily without being super intentional about it. Um, in spite of the amount of intention that I try to bring, sometimes things just kind of fall into your lap. So I, I started my career teaching social studies at Aspen Middle School uh, in Aspen, Colorado. That was my first job uh, after graduate school. And I kind of fell into the Aspen Valley nonprofit scene. Uh, and I, that entailed a number of jobs, working for a number of very different organizations. Um, but ultimately, what they all had in common was this, this one thread of organizational leadership. So it turned into a lot of program development and implementation. So basically, what was the mission of the organization and how did that translate into a program that would inspire uh, the community to want to engage with us? And after over a dozen years working in organizational leadership and program development, um, I, I've, my, the, last, the last gig that I had doing that, um, I knew was a one-year interim director type of position. Uh, and at the end of the year, I had um, a year old at home and my wife was sort of tapping her foot saying, OK, buddy, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, the only thing that I felt like I was really good at that I could sort of turnkey walk into was helping people to get organized in different aspects of their life. And so I started begging my friends to let me help them organize their garages and their home offices and their kitchens just to see if it was something that I could do. And I started trading for testimonials at first. 
And um, before I knew it, I was up and running and I had a column in the Aspen Times twice a month. And that lasted for five years, turned into a best-selling book. And here I am seven years later, um, having been a professional organizer. And, uh, you know, the, I, I kind of call myself a holistic organizer because my professional practice helps people in all aspects of organization in both their personal and professional lives. Uh, and I donate my services to public school teachers around the country for free uh, because I really feel like if I can help classroom teachers uh, integrate some of these strategies and tactics with their students, um, my my work will be exponential in that way. You also model philanthropy within your business by donating a portion of the income that you receive to support local organizations. So you've teamed up with uh, 1% for the planet, uh, for example, and that organization matches contributions to uh, environmental sustainability. And it seems like that's like a really big portion of um, your mission and kind of value system within your business, influencing community. And uh, I'd love for you to kind of discuss more ways that we all can kind of stay connected as thoroughly as you have. Well, I, I kind of feel like the direction of all of business is kind of moving towards entrepreneurialism. I think there's more and more people who want to be self-employed. They want their own schedules. They want to have more say on what they do from day to day and why they do it. Um, they, they want to be able to work in, in the way that makes them feel most alive and most productive. Um, and I think a lot of the, the good feeling about being an entrepreneur um, is the ability to give back on your terms. So it's not like you make a paycheck and you're just going to pay your taxes and that's your contribution to your community. Is in your is it, it comes out of your income taxes or your um, your property taxes. I think entrepreneurs are really looking for um, social causes that they can support and give back to. So for me, I was looking for where can I have the biggest impact? And so, and it's only as recently as last year, I reached out to 1% for the planet, uh, who I have always uh, absolutely admired. Um, and I said, I'm looking for an opportunity to give back in three different ways. Um, I want to look for organizations that are supporting fair trade globally, social justice, and environmental sustainability. So those are kind of the three things that I feel like we should all be talking about. Those are the areas that I feel like are going to get the most attention in the next uh, several decades as we as we approach um, just really dire, dire situations around the world in terms of how, what are the working conditions that people have to endure um, in, in the variety of industries out there. And if you think about clutter, um, th the fast fashion industry is just one example, but it's a good example. What are, the, what are the circumstances that people have to endure in the course of their work? Um, and what, what does that have to do with my clutter? So uh, when I look at my clientele around my professional organizing work, I'm always looking to help people, my clients in particular, connect the dots between their stuff, 
all that clutter with the impact those things have on a global scale. Um, and that's one aspect that I feel like um, the Conmary method doesn't necessarily dive deep enough into. So, it, and I've said this before, I really hope to pick up where, where she leaves off in that if we can help people to connect the dots between their stuff, um, where those things come from, how we acquire them and what into what went into making those things that we bring home and what happens to them after we're finished with them so that we can really kind of start to close the loop between all of that stuff all of that clutter and that's a lot of where my philanthropic agenda comes from is helping people to understand where does this stuff come from and what are the social and environmental impacts those things have um, before we acquire them, while we have them, and then after we get rid of them again. Yeah, I feel like your book, The Clutter Revolution, is is an extension. Uh, I agree. It, it does pick up where um, the Marie Kondo Kanmari method leaves off, and it really connects those dots, like you said, uh, between the stuff and its impact on a global scale. And it turns into almost a conscious consumer's manifesto. And I'd love for you to share some, you know, conscious consumerism and you know, tips for those out there trying to really change their behaviors in terms of how they consume um, after they've, they've done the whole discovery process that's a part of the Kamari Tiding event. I think one of the things that, that helps to inform um, just the most basic practical strategy for how we deal with our stuff, whether we consider it clutter or not, is just to sort of take an inventory of why we are interested in, in acquiring certain things. So for me, my first step is always need less, just need less. If we if we were not constantly going through our lives aspiring to the next thing, if we were, if we started our day with this sense of gratitude for having that which is needed when it is needed and not a single item more, that's kind of my definition of abundance is this mm -hmm. sense of gratitude for having that which is needed and nothing more. Um, and it starts with gratitude for me and being okay with not having a pair of black shoes and a pair of blue shoes and a pair of red shoes and a pair of green shoes and a pair of gold shoes and the sparkly shoes and the silvery shoes. Just being okay with what we have and letting ourselves feel, or I guess not just feel, be filled up with the sense of gratitude for having what we need when we need it. Um, and so for me, what that does is it diminishes this need to increase things being manufactured all the time at the factory mm. level. So I always try to encourage people to, if you need something, okay, check in with what you need and why you need it and what is available to you in close proximity to you already, either by... Um, upcycling something that you already have, borrowing something from someone in your community, or accessing the secondhand economies right there at home, 
both the thrift stores and the consignment stores right there at home. And not like for a lot of people, their first, their first inclination or their gut reaction um, is to jump online and buy something. We've made it so easy for people to just mindlessly buy, 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 and not buying the things that are made to last or made with fair trade in mind so that we're really ensuring that the people who manufacture these items are paid a living wage and are not suffering in brutal conditions on the other side of the planet somewhere, or that the the materials that are used to source those items um, were not sourced in a responsible um, and, and sustainable way. So like that's usually the first tip that I give people is just be more mindful. This concept of conscious consumerism is all about helping people to stop and pause and just take a moment and ask yourself, was anyone harmed in the making of this item? And do I support that industry if that was the case? And I think far too often we don't we don't take that moment just to check in. I think for a lot of people, even the act of organizing, because this consumerism is so ingrained in us, a lot of my clients, one of the first things they'll say to me is, okay, so what things do I need to go buy at, you know, name big box store that sells containers? Um, Because the first response to every problem is there must be a solution I can buy for this. So it's so interesting to me to, to... to think in in terms of of how we're really looking at trying to uncover conscious and unconscious behaviors that contribute to this um, this idea that there is some there is a consumer solution to every problem in the world. You, you've given some great tips already on how to begin to look at that from a really practical perspective. How do you suggest that people begin to look at um, at their their consumption through a more global lens? We as consumers, that's why it's called the clutter-free revolution. We as consumers are the ones that will be responsible for educating ourselves about what we're buying. Where did these things come from? How were they manufactured? And with what impact on the people and the places on our planet that are negatively impacted by that, by that product? So what we want to try to do is inspire consumers to be more um, mindful about the fact that there is a there is a pretty substantive crisis happening globally when it comes to pollution, when it comes to um, very unfair practices, when it comes to people that are are being asked to manufacture certain items uh, or organic farming is a wonderful art alternative, especially uh, when you look at uh, organic cotton farming, is a wonderful alternative to traditional cotton farming. So if you have the opportunity to support an organic operation, you, you're going to know that the water supply of those, those communities is not absolutely being poisoned by chemicals that are proven carcinogenic um, and are having brutal absolutely brutal impact on those communities in far-flung places around the around the world so even though they're not in our faces 
we can educate ourselves about where these things come from, how those materials are being sourced. There, there are some great uh, references. Um, my, my, I'm, I've actually started my next book project. It's on this topic. It's all about um, the entrepreneurs that are redefining success in business through a radical commitment to fair trade, social justice, and environmental sustainability. And it features uh, companies, corporate businesses that have made it their business to do best practice in both social justice and environmental sustainability. There are a number of websites that curate um, products and uh, companies that are really trying to do a very, very good job by empowering local communities through fair trade and socially just practices around um, the, the products that are being manufactured for sale in the West uh, and online. So thegoodtrade.com is one website that I absolutely love and recommend that people go to just for a little bit of knowledge about what's out there and, and who's doing amazing things. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, packed apparel makes underwear. People tell me all the time, I'm not going to buy my underwear secondhand. You don't have to. You can buy fair trade organic cotton underwear. It's fantastic. Uh, very affordable underwear. And it is absolutely 100% fair trade and organic cotton. Uh, they do a wonderful job helping to, to educate their consumer base about why they've chosen to be in business in the way that they're they're doing business and it's specifically because they see that there is a problem problem in the undergarment industry as one example of fast fashion that is just not taking enough consideration about the, the negative impacts that we're having on the people that are making those clothes and the and the way that we're sourcing the, those those uh, textiles yeah, I think education is definitely the key. I definitely agree with you on that. And really, I think we're taking this in a magnifying glass to consumerism at the moment because by default, we're so kind of programmed to that anything we need, we can get it instantly at this point, um, whether it be food, <laughs> clothing, uh, there's all these uh, subscription services out there. Uh, we don't even have to leave our house to buy anything anymore. Um, and by default, we're, we're, we don't necessarily uh, think about where is this product coming from? What company is are we supporting by purchasing it? And I think it's not something that we can easily solve uh, overnight, right? It's, uh, I mean, I think it took us not so much time to get into these holes of, of buying things instantly because we can put our hands on these things so quickly. But it's uh, the digging out that takes a little bit longer, whether we use the tool of minimalism or um, the clutter revolution or, or Kanmari method. And that's why we really opened this show up to uh, various organizers with different perspectives. And we don't limit it just to uh, the KonMari method because we feel like each one has value and uh, organizing in general and digging out of consumerism or clutter is it's not, there's not really a one size fits all solution. So I know that Evan, your particular method, uh, you've described it as a ridiculously simple three-step method mm -hmm. to organizing that makes you, um, or that makes up your signature style. So can you tell us a bit more about this philosophy? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So the, the three steps are, are not a secret. They're available on my website for free to anybody who wants to, um, to, to use them. Before we get to step one, I always ask people to um, imagine, just take a moment. And if we're standing in your kitchen or your living room or your garage or your home office, I always say, if you could snap your fingers or wave your magic wand and have this already be exactly the way you want it, what would it look like? So that is um, Stephen Covey's highly effective habit number two, which is start with the end in mind, right? So what is your ideal vision of this space? And let's just take a moment to sort of picture it in your mind's eye. And that mental image, that um, visual that you have sort of in your brain will inform what we do next. So it's just a, a, a five minute little exercise that we do just to kind of help inspire you about what you'd like it to be like or feel like when we're all finished. Um, so that's the first thing we do. Um, once we've sort of created this mental image of what we'd like it to be, um, we go to step one. And step one is, I want this process to be simple. So step one is simplify. And by simplify, I mean, purge the things that do not serve your ideal vision of this space, right? So if something was not a part of that ideal vision, it might be a liability. It might just stand in the way between you and what you'd like to achieve. So let's purge the things out of this space that really are not serving your ideal vision. We do that in four ways. What's trash, what's recyclable, what's thrift or giftable, and what's consignable or sellable. So step one is let's purge the things um, that are going to make the rest of this process easier. So that's first. Step two is we need clarity about the essentials, the things that are absolutely essential to who we're trying to be and what we're trying to do um, need to get organized in a way so that things are easy to find and convenient to put away. So step two is clarify. And by clarify, I mean organize. Now, these are my four rules of organization. And by the way, all professional organizers have some variation of this. So um, I, I don't I don't know that I'm necessarily unique in, in my approach, but my four per, my personal four rules of organization are like things together so that they're easy to find, easy to reach and out of the way and easy to reach and out of the way are sort of contrasts. So close enough to be convenient, but not so close that they're right in my face and piles all the time. So it's really sometimes difficult for people to know where to put anything if it's close, but not too close. So I have this little uh, formula and the formula says proximity equals urgency. So I don't know, one of you tell me what that means to you. Proximity equals urgency. Proximity equals urgency. So I, when I hear that, I immediately think about my bar cart actually in my living room (laughs) and a friend of mine, who was helping me move recently was like, why do you have these particular lotions here on this bar cart? You know, that seemed kind of odd to her, right? But sure. It made sense to me because before I leave the house or before I go see a client, oftentimes is, is why I'm leaving the house. Um, amongst other things, my, my own personal life, um, I like to just do a check in the mirror, put certain lotions on. I also have my hair clips and um, gum and just the things like uh, 
chapstick, things like that um, in a small decorative bowl um, on the cart as well. So it's kind of like my station. So although I have other like items uh, elsewhere in my home, other lotions, other chapsticks, uh, because I need those tools urgently for a specific reason, uh, I put them all together in near the door, near the front door. Uh, it helps me get on with my day. Perfect. It's, it's, it's just the perfect example. It's all, what are the things that you're quick reaching for all the time and putting them in a location that's going to be so easy to get to. So easy to find and then easy to put, put away, convenient to put away. So that, those are my four roles of organization. That's, that's how we get clarity about the essentials. Now, step three is the most fun. And that is inspire. We want people to be inspired by their spaces, but not just inspired by their spaces for the sake of walking in and loving the way that your home looks, also inspired to maintain it in the way that you like it. So when we feel in, when we go into a space and we love it so much, we will get a little bit picky and a little bit fussy about how we like things put away and how we like things kept. So much so that if something was put in the incorrect place, we would be inspired to correct that and put it in the proper place, right? So this is how, if you're, if you're dealing with an entire household, for example, and I don't mean professional organizers' households, I'm talking about people that are not professional organizers. How do we inspire those families or those, um, those offices to create a culture around feeling so inspired because it's exactly the way we love it. And it's actually quite beautiful to consistently go out of your way to maintain those spaces in the way that we like them. Those three steps tend to inform what do we need? Where are those things going to go? And how are we going to create the space so that we're inspired to maintain it day after day after day? In the clutter-free revolution, you do encourage a little bit of tough love. And in KonMari, we often talk about this idea that it's, it's sometimes necessary to feel a little uncomfortable before you're able to make those, those really challenging internal um, changes that are, are really necessary in order to have a long-lasting and profound impact on the amount of clutter that you have in your home. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what kinds of things you need to hear about clutter, kind of some of the tough love things that you have found to be helpful with your clients? Sure. I think a lot of people start with and get bogged down with or, or they, they get challenged instantly and to the point of paralysis when they start thinking about the most difficult things, like the things, what do I do with the things that I inherited from f family members that are no longer with us. Um, and so a lot of times I, what I'll do is I'll put them at ease. I, I always say, we're not going to deal with those things first. Um, what I like to do is I try to, I'm a teacher, right? So that's my, my background is in education. So what I try to do is build a sense of self-efficacy, this sense of self-confidence by giving people baby steps, giving people an opportunity to experience small successes in an incremental way, right? So we don't start with the things that are really stressful, the things that um, there might be some disagreement around the house about what we keep and what we get rid of. Um, and so what I usually start with is 
the old cottage cheese in the refrigerator, right? <laughs> but those, are, those are easy decisions. Looking at old yogurt containers that are filled with Chinese takeout, those are easy decisions. If you look at um, your sock drawer, for example, it's usually a lot easier to go through and sort of purge the socks that have holes in them. Um, and the, you know, maybe some of the t-shirts that you haven't worn in a while. So when you start small and start slow and you start building your donation bin with things that are pretty or relatively easy to get rid of, right? You start building this momentum around how you go through the process. When we finally get to the really tough things, the really um, sometimes controversial items in the household, that's usually where we stop and we pause and we reflect and there's a there's an element of catharsis um, when we when we get to the point where I have to sit there and say, tell me about this item and tell me about your connection to this item. Tell me about wh- wh- why you feel the need to hold on to this in spite of the fact that you've already said you don't love it. You don't have a place for it. And storing it is an inconvenience for you. So when I say tough love, a lot of that tough love component is what are we accumulating in the first place? Honey, do you really need this thing? Actually, no, you're right. I don't. (laughs) Do you need 50? And I live in Aspen, Colorado. So do you need 50 pairs of black yoga pants? I mean, they're all the same. These are all Lululemon. They're all the same size. They're all black. Like, why do you need 50 pairs of black Lululemon yoga pants? And so some of that is tough love. Some of that is really just somebody pointing out, um, you know, yeah, you're, you know, Evan, you're right. I really don't need this many of this type of thing. Like a lot of uh, when it comes to tough love, a lot of times somebody will say, how do I know how much of a thing should I, am I allowed to keep? Um, I call that exercise lid on a box and lid on a box is really simple strategy for people who have no self-control. So if you're just an accumulator and you just have these collections of things, lid on a box gives you very strict guidelines. Um, The box is the size of the container, a reasonable container for those kinds of things. And it's all like things together. So uh, this is how much I'm allocating for this kind of thing. And once that space is full, that's it. That's all I'm going to get. And if I want to get something new, I'm going to have to take something out of that box because I want to put a lid on that box. I don't want these things just breeding in the cover of darkness and accumulating all over the floor. Um, And before I know it, I've got a situation where all of my corners are absolutely covered uh, in what I call corner crap, right? And um, uh, carpet cactus, these things that you're just stepping on all over the floor. So so it's really important for people to start getting these little these little reminders about how many of something do I really need? I love that you are making these, well, the, your clutter-free resolution is really aligning well with um, KonMari method. And I just thought about how I'm hearing some themes um, and one being like boundaries for sure. Um, I think it's easy when we come across this idea of what sparks joy to sometimes get a little bit carried away with that. Um, So I love this idea that you have a focus on intentional boundaries, like, okay, we enough 
yoga pants to fit in this box, for example. Um, And also this whole idea of working your way up to what is troubling you uh, the most. So not trying to uh, trying to fight the fire, um, whatever's flashing in front of you, whether it be the kids toys or paper, that's uh, I have a lot of clients who want to immediately rush to that problem without kind of stepping back and just easing and, as you said, building that muscle to where you can be more focused on dealing with those sentimental items. And I actually wrote, I wrote an article about this and it's called Your Joy Is Not Enough. Um, and I, I think that it was um, just this concept of what, how are we taking this concept of what serves me and what serves my family and what serves my immediate needs and how can I kind of reflect on the rest of the world? Um, and how can I kind of look beyond my own immediate and, you know, gratification, um, this, this sense of, of joy can be transcended to this sense of purpose, um, and this sense of, being more than myself and um, uh, having this intention around the, the, not just the, the way that I live, but the things that I need um, and having them all support this idea of um, generosity and compassion and philanthropy. And like if we can inspire entire communities um, the, the, the former um, senior economics di- um, director for the NAACP um, gave this, this really amazing testimonial of my book and was like, you know, okay, he, uh, I had a, 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 an opportunity to have this really amazing conversation with him. And he was like, you know, this book is so important because it gives communities an, idea, an opportunity to reflect on how can I transform every aspect of my life and all of the things that I invite into my life. And by things, I mean those material things. Um, Clutter is not just figure, like a a literal clutter. It's also figurative clutter. How can I transcend um, what I invite into my life and my space by elevating the meaning of those things with this sense of purpose around what I what I want to support and what I intentionally do not want to support. So for example, if you knew a garment in your closet was manufactured by a a young woman um, who for all intents and purposes is, is a peer of yours, um, you know, similar family background and same age and so on and so forth. But that she, if you knew that she had to endure such brutal conditions in her workplace in order to provide you with an opportunity to purchase this this shirt or this garment at a discounted price, um, you would absolutely reject the idea of of welcoming that that garment or that item into your into your life. You you would feel icky wearing it. Um, and just as an example of those that that kind of intention around. What is the clutter? Like if we just look around the clutter and I, I do this, ex- this exercise with my clients all the time and I say, what do you have here? And they'll look at it with this look of disgust on their face. And they're like, I don't even know what these things are. I certainly don't need them. And it, and it creates a shift where this work, this, the intention behind what we do next transcends joy 
Um, and I just wanted to put that out there. It goes the step beyond what brings me joy. It gives, it gives this work meaning and purpose beyond my own personal joy. And that elevates my joy to this whole other level because I know that I'm contributing positively on a global scale, which is huge. It's what we need right now. I love this idea of transcending joy because ultimately we start this process by examining things at a micro level, the clutter and just how things are immediately impacting our space. And as you said, whatever's urgently needed. Um, But really, I love how you just make the connection that we can transcend that and focus more on experiences and impact uh, globally and beyond. You value your family uh, very dearly. And I I immediately got that impression when visiting um, Clutter Free Revolution. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you also live intentionally at home. We have a lot of listeners out there that are part of busy families and may feel like being clutter-free and having kids uh, can't go in the same sentence, <laughs> can't go, can't be hand in hand. So any uh, tips on, on really living more intentionally at home or if you could share your experience? Sure. So I, I you know, I, coming from a, an educational background, I used to be a classroom teacher. Seventh grade was my, my baby. So, um, you know, I, my focus was always in that middle level. Uh, so 10 to 14 year olds, which is a really challenging age. Um, I, and, and I was a, a parent coach uh, at an organization that works with um, at-risk t- uh, uh, kids and at-risk families. And so I've done a lot around that whole parenting piece and, and setting up um, a culture in your household that supports um, feeling organized and diminishing this, this sense of chaos um, that, that can be both literal and figurative. Um, so I think one of the things that that I do in my home, my daughter is only, she's, she'll be eight years old this week. So she's, um, she, you know, just kind of getting into a place where she has the developmental capacity to really be intentional herself about some of these things. But from a very early age, we were practicing organization with her. So for example, and a lot of parents are like, what you did, what, um, from a very early age, we told her, these are your toys. This is where they go. And at the end of every day, while you're getting ready for bed, we want you to clean your room. So when when we say, okay, uh, and her name is Juniper. So we say, Juno, it's time to go upstairs and go to bed. <laughs> Please go upstairs and get ready for bed. She knows that that means brush your teeth, put on your pajamas and clean your room. And she knows that anything that is left on the floor, when I go upstairs to read her books, I will be getting rid of. And when I say that, I mean, those things will be going to a local thrift store for other kids in the community to play with. If she cannot show me that she has the ability to manage those things, it's okay. She's not in trouble. It's just too much. There's too much for her to, to be able to manage realistically. So if she's not able to manage that number of things, it's okay. I'll take care of those things for you. That's a very love and logic approach. If you're familiar with love and logic parenting, Um, those are very realistic um, expectations, consequences 
So if somebody leaves something on the floor, it's no problem. I'll take care of that for you. So you, you bet your whatever, she goes up there and she cleans her room. And if she says, I'm not ready to go get ready for bed, I say, it's okay. I'm going to go upstairs and take care of it for you. And she <laughs> upstairs and push me out of the way to clean her room. And for parents to hear that, and they're begging their kids to clean their room, begging on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or a semi-annual basis to clean their room. My daughter cleans her room every, every day. And so what it's done is it it's instilled in her this sense of ownership and responsibility and philanthropy. Very oftentimes while she's cleaning her space, she'll put some things aside and she'll or she'll bring something to me and she'll say, Daddy, I'm finished with this. We can pass this along. So she knows where those things are going. And it's not just her toys, it's her clothes. Um, it's it's things that she just doesn't doesn't use or, or doesn't need anymore. So she's already got that on autopilot. She's eight, she's been doing it for four years now. So, and she also has this sense of appreciation for a clean living space. Developmentally, um, it's more appropriate for her age to have room to, to play in, space to move around in, than it does for her to have a ton of toys. I have not heard uh, that tip before about kind of swiping anything that lands on the floor at the end of the day. I think it would work well for kids and adults, honestly. And (laughs) And, uh, really what I love about it is it is a way to model respect, gratitude, and joy, which are essentially pillars of Kanmari. And it's just a constant reminder that we are to be extensions of homes that we honor. And Gosh, I mean, teaching that to your daughter at a young age is so valuable. And the fact that she's running up the stairs to clean is amazing. So I really appreciate you sharing that tip. I think it's a, a great one. One of the things I, I noticed about, um, one of the things that I've noticed in my working with kids is that a lot of times there's, in a, in a cluttered home, there will be just floor-to-ceiling toys. And I liked what you said about giving kids a space because my experience is, is that those kids are just so overstimulated that they their attention cannot be held for more than a few seconds by any one toy because there's just too many options. And and so I I, I talk with parents a lot about this idea of, of if you have toys that Let's take the toys that you have now. Let's try not to bring anything more in. But with the ones that you do have, why don't we try to maybe just give them two or three at a time? Take a look at what the kids are actually playing with and put everything else away. And then, you know, maybe at some point when they are getting bored with those toys and you bring out some other ones and and let the first set go. Um, Because I just see, it just seems like not only... Not only are children overstimulated, but people are, all of us are over, grownups are overstimulated by how much is just coming into our, into our, into our vision, not only real vision, but into our headspace as well. So it's such, such an interesting idea. You know, Karen, I think that um, there's this wonderful dynamic that happens. Um, it's this, it's this really elusive idea that is really difficult for people to kind of grasp until they experience it. And that is the fewer items we possess, the, the less things we have, the greater value they come to possess. So 
if you only have one thing, I, I really only have one thing that was my grandfather's. Um, and it's his social security card that was in his wallet when he passed away. And he died when my mother was 13 years old. So I was named after him. And it's the only thing I have of his that was his. And I tell you what, it has so much meaning and so much value and importance to me. Um, there's this wonderful dynamic that happens. The fewer things that we have, and I say this about monks and mountaineers, they don't have a ton of things, but the things that they have, they are revered. They are, they are cherished um, and they're so taken care of and they're put on pedestals and in shrines um, where they are, they're just not taken for granted. Um, and, you know, it's not a mistake that the, our favorite book in this, in, in my home and with my family is the Velveteen Rabbit, which of course is the story of the stuffed animal who is just loved so much that it, that it becomes real. Um, and when you have so many toys, just as an example, one example, when you have so many of one kind of thing, there's no one or two things that just have any value. Every, all of the value of all of those items just becomes diminished to the point of, it's just everything is superfluous. Nothing has meaning. So I think that it, it's, it's so important to give kids and adults for that matter, the opportunity to play with that dynamic uh, and give people the opportunity to engage with things that really do spark joy. These are things that authentically um, make my heart just absolutely skip a beat. Um, and I know that I could not, nor would I try to live without. Perfect. Yes. If everything's important, nothing is important. Right? That's yeah. right. That was my thought exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Towards fewer, better things. Love it. Well, Evan, before you leave us, we cannot uh, forget to ask you at this very moment, what sparks the most joy in your life? Right now, it's um, the beginning a new project. Um, I, I'm just in the infancy of, of writing a book proposal to um, go out into the world. And it, this is a global project to try to find the entrepreneurs that are really leading the charge towards creating businesses and more specifically products that are that support fair trade, social justice, and environmental system sustainability. As a professional organizer, I've, I've come to see the connection between all this stuff, all this clutter, um, both literal and figurative. And it, it has made me want to go out into the world and explore what are the, the alternatives to some of these junky things that we've just accumulated in mass. Great. And as you complete the project, will you be posting it on Clutter-Free Revolution? Yes. Um, I would say it's a little probably premature for me to share um, sure. the preliminary proposal stages. But yes, everything will will be launched um, out of ClutterFreeRevolution.com. And uh, before you know it, the, you know, the working title, I can share this. The working title is Good Company. Um and uh, and just just look for it because I'm I'm really excited about the direction that this might go. 
Yes, we will definitely update our show notes and keep um, our listeners posted as you proceed towards the project that sparks the most joy. Awesome. awesome. And I can, if I if it's okay with you, I would just love to share a little gratitude um, for Dr. Melver Green, um, the, the host of the TV show Hoarders. She generously wrote the foreword to my last book, Clutter for Revolution. I am endlessly inspired by her. And um, and so so grateful for her mentorship and and her inspiration to so many people who just uh, tune in uh, to her message all the time. So um, and thank you both so much for inviting me to participate and in, uh, in in your program. Oh, you're very welcome. We actually had Dr. Green on our show as well. And I know. We, I know. I heard it. I heard oh, that's it. great. Yeah, yeah, she's she's incredibly inspiring. So, and it's so neat that she wrote the forward to your book. And we definitely will be looking for your for your new work um, as it comes out. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you so much. To connect with Evan, visit clutterfreerevolution.com and follow him on Facebook and Twitter at clutterfreerevolution. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how KonMari has impacted your life. You can find us at sparkjoypodcast.com and click Ask Spark Joy to leave a question or comment for a chance to be featured on next week's show. While you're there, sign up to join our SparkJoy podcast community and get notified when each episode airs. You can also join the SparkJoy podcast community on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the handle at SparkJoyPodcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with KonMari Media Incorporated. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of KonMari Media Incorporated or the KonMari Consultant Community.